Good morning, everyone. It's uh, really good to be here to bring you God's word in person. First time I preached here uh, at Christ Central was into the cave of the camera at the office, and that wasn't so fun. And even though I can't see your faces, you're speaking to me through your eyes, and that's way better than speaking to a camera. Um, I'm going to do a little bit different, something a little bit different today in that I'm not going to be reading the whole passage in the beginning. Um, I'm going to be going through it really section by section, even verse by verse at some points. And so I'll be reading the relevant scriptures at those different points. Uh, if you're online with us, you know, you can pull out your Bible and follow along. We all have bulletins here, so it makes it easier to follow along. Also, um, the verses online will be going on screen on slides, so you'll be able to follow along in that way too if you're online. But um, with that, let me just pray again and just ask the Lord's blessing on his word. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we, we praise your name. You are the living God. You are a God who speaks and whose word is power. And so, Lord, speak in the power of the Holy Spirit into our hearts. And may all those listening, whether here in person or online, may they come with expectant hearts to hear from you, the living God. In Jesus' name, amen. I wonder if you ever heard of a leprosy village. Uh, probably not. It's not, not common in the Western world at all right now. It's kind of archaic. But in 1998, I was living in Hong Kong, which is my hometown. I was serving as middle school coordinator at the church where I became a Christian at as a teenager myself. And uh, the youth pastor and I led the youth group into mainland China uh, for a missions trip. And one of the stops on that missions trip was to a leprosy village. Now. I didn't know what a leprosy village was either at the time, and I came to find out that um, a leprosy village was essentially where all those who had leprosy, those who were lepers, were taken out of the city into a very remote part in a village by themselves, cut off from general public, cut off from friends and family, and just to live out their days by themselves with one another as lepers. Um, I, don't, I don't know if you've ever been to mainland China, but even just 20 years ago, when you travel back into mainland China, some parts of it, or many parts of it, you can feel like you're going back in time 10 or 20 years just because of development, economic development. Um, it was really weird to, to go into these leprosy villages and to see the conditions that they were living in. They were living in really essentially horrible conditions, uh, just extreme poverty and to see that they were really given very little care as well, almost just left to live by themselves. And the reason why there was that practice was because there was this very strong stigma still attached to those who had leprosy. And so people felt like, even friends and family felt like those who they loved who, who had leprosy had to be put away somewhere else. And there was this great fear of the contagiousness of that as well. And so many of these lepers that we met, they'd be maybe without hands, or per perhaps without feet, or perhaps just arms as stumps, or perhaps just no legs at all. And those who had no legs, often we would see them just scooting around on a wooden board with these makeshift wheels. And so it was, it was heart-wrenching. It was heart-wrenching to see just the conditions that they were living in. It was heart-wrenching to see how much shame and stigma was attached to the condition that they had, that they weren't being cared for medically well, just essentially left alone. But it was also heartwarming to see at least our privileged Asian and, and white kids, uh, youth group kids go and just 
try to offer a ministry of presence to them, to, to reach out, touch them even, to smile at them, to speak with them, even with the language barrier. And again, just offer the dignity uh, to these people who had leprosy, to offer them dignity that was theirs as image bearers. But again, these so-called lepers were left outside of the camp, out in shame, out in isolation, out in darkness. In today's passage, we are looking at the interaction between the bleeding woman and Jesus. And she too was a person who was shunned and ostracized by her community. And her reason was that she had been bleeding for 12 years and under Jewish law, she was considered unclean. And so again, much of her community, probably going way overboard, just left her alone to herself. And so she too was a person living under the weight of shame, living in isolation. Now, I just want to give a little bit of context for this text. Um, we, we actually, the last two weeks, been in Mark chapter 4 and 5. And, and in these chapters, we see Jesus showing the nature of his kingship and the nature of his kingdom uh, through parables and miracles. And Jesus shows that he is the God over, he has power over creation, over evil, over sickness, and even death. And for ourselves, as we live in these divisive and uncertain times, we certainly feel this great longing for peace, for justice, for the kind of shalom that God describes in his word. And yet we also see around us that there are, there are those who are calling for revolution. There are those who fear civil war for our country right now. And I want to ask this question for us as Christians as we kind of hang out in chapter 4 and 5 in Mark. What is the uniquely Christian hope for the kingdom of God for us? What is the uniquely Christian hope we have uh, in belief in the kingdom of God? Now, King Jesus will certainly deal with institutional sin in this world. And yet in this, in this story today, we're really going to be looking at our individual sense of shame. And I think it's appropriate in our time because so much of what we do, so much of our reactions come out of our sense of shame at the same time. And so again, Jesus is highlighting this interaction with a woman struggling deep with shame. Now, hear me, you, you don't have to be a leper. You don't have to be someone deemed as unclean by your, un, by your religious community to, to feel like you're living under the weight of shame. And as we dig into today's passage, I think you'll begin to connect with that. So with that, let's dig into today's passage. I'll start with uh, verse 21 here. When Jesus had again crossed over by boat, to the other side of the lake, a large crowd gathered around him while he was by the lake. Then one of the synagogue leaders named Jairus came, and when he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet. He pleaded earnestly with him, my little daughter is dying. Please come and put your hands on her so that she will be healed and live. Now this account of Jesus and the bleeding woman is actually sandwiched in between uh, this miraculous act of Jesus raising Jairus' daughter from the dead. Jairus was this synagogue president and in a small town with maybe two or three officers like him. He wasn't that big of a deal, but at the same time, you would imagine he would have to come and really humble himself to throw himself at Jesus' feet to plead for him to heal his daughter. And so Jesus responded with compassion, and he's on his way to Jairus' house when this happens. Verse 24, so Jesus went with him. A large crowd followed and pressed around him. And a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. She had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all she had, 
yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. I want you to try to imagine, and it's good actually that we're outdoors right now, because uh, maybe we get a sense of a crowd following Jesus a little bit better than being in a sanctuary. But try to picture the scene of a huge crowd just following Jesus along, following Jesus as he goes to Jairus' house. They're pressing against him, eager to see what he's going to do next or what he's going to say next. Now try to imagine a time when you were in such a crowd. Now we're socially distanced, so you're not going to feel it here, right? But imagine the time you were in a crowded subway train or at a crowded basketball game, a crowded football game. And so, and there in the crowd, in this crowd at least, there was this one woman desperate to get to Jesus. She was, again, deemed unclean according to the Jewish law and ostracized by a community. And, but she had just this faith that perhaps Jesus could do something for her. It really is amazing that she had faith at all. We try to put, herself, put ourselves in her shoes 12 years of struggling with this chronic illness of bleeding that led her to be ostracized and to be repeatedly disappointed again and again by doctors' efforts. I mean, this could leave a person to just resign themselves to not hope at all again or to even curse God as a result. Now, those of you who have struggled with chronic illness, whether mental or physical, you probably know well that sense of despair that this woman might have felt. Now, this woman, not only was she ill then, we are told she was penniless because of all the money she had spent on doctors to no avail. And so she was destitute in every way, physically, socially, and financially. And as it says very clearly and succinctly, instead of getting better, she grew worse. But spiritually, she still had faith. Her faith, you could say, was both great and small. It was amazing faith, born out of desperation, and born out of lowliness and brokenness. Her faith, though, was at the same time small, only the size of a mustard seed because in her shame, in her fear of disappointment again, she felt like she did not want to seek healing out in the light. She did not want to draw attention to herself. We too, in our unhealthy shame, we often feel like we can't tell anyone about it. We have to find solutions on our own in the dark, in isolation. We do not want to bring it into the light. We do not want to bring it into the presence of embodied people or even embodied God. It's too scary, too risky, it seems to us. Perhaps, like the bleeding woman, you too have struggled with some chronic illness, again, whether mental or spiritual, and you've felt shame put on you as a result. Or perhaps shame has been put on you because of the color of your skin. Or perhaps shame has been put on you because you didn't live up to your, your family's definition of success. Or perhaps shame has been put on you because society has told you you're not pretty enough, or you're not smart enough, you're not fit enough. Or perhaps shame has been put on you by your tribe because you're not black enough, you're not white enough, you're not moderate enough or progressive enough or conservative enough. Shame gets put on us and we internalize it and we make it what it seems like our own voice and we suffer under the unhealthy shame of that voice. An internal voice that often gets triggered by external circumstances or external voices. But let's see how this woman continues in her approach to Jesus. Verse 27, when she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak because she thought, if I just touch his clothes, I will be healed. 
Now, again, think, the bleeding woman, bleeding for 12 years, in her anemic, weakened state, pushes through a crowd of people to get to Jesus, thinking, maybe if I just touch the bottom of his robe, perhaps I'll be healed. It's amazing faith, and yet small at the same time. There was a period during seminary where God really just broke me down. The stuff I was studying led me to realize that truly my best acts before God were like filthy rags compared to his standards. I was realizing the depth of my sin to a new degree. Here's the thing. I took pride in my repentance. Sounds silly, doesn't it? I took pride in my repentance. I thought I was good at repenting, that that was my saving grace, that I was good at beating myself up real good after I'd sinned and then bringing that before God, that my repentance had become my works righteousness. But this realization really messed me up because I felt like, Lord, if the best thing I can bring you, which is my repentance, if that too is tainted with my sinful motivations, then what can I say to you at all? And I literally did not know how to talk to God for a period. I would just fall prostrate before him and cry out to him. Not words, just cry, like literally cry to him. There's this song that I attached to this time in my life where God was doing a work in me. And it's a song by Cayman's Call called Love Alone. And it really, this period in the song helped me to realize in a deeper way how everything I do and everything I say is covered by the blood of Christ. And it helped me to see my helplessness, my wordlessness, and my need for God's grace in a lowly place. And so here are some lyrics that I really resonated with in that song. It says, no one would love me if they knew the things I hide. And the hands I've seen raised to the sky are not waving, but drowning this time. And the chorus goes, give me your hand to hold, because I can't stand on love alone. And love alone is not enough to hold us up. We've got to touch your robe. So swing your robe down low. Swing your robe down low. As you can hear, the main imagery of the chorus that is repeated is from this gospel account of the bleeding woman reaching out to touch the edge of Jesus' robe. It's a picture for any of us when in our shame it leaves us wordless and with little faith, enabling us perhaps with just that little bit of faith to reach out to Jesus to touch the edge of his robe from the lowliness of the ground to reach out to him and hope for healing. When we feel like words alone about God's love is not enough, that we need to feel his touch, his presence, his power, his person. Let's see how this works out for the women. Verse 29, immediately her bleeding stopped and she felt in her body that she was freed from her suffering. We're not told this here, but what was she feeling when she felt healed and that she felt her body freed from suffering? Again, we're not told, but we have to imagine she was elated, ecstatic, overjoyed, just beside herself, not knowing what to do with herself. It's been 12 years of suffering. Verse 30, it continues, at once Jesus realized that power had gone out from him. He turned around in the crowd and asked, 
Who touched my clothes? What is Jesus' tone here, do you imagine, in your head? Is he irked? Is he like a parent, like irked that his annoying children are asking him to do just one more thing when he's got other more important things to do? Or is Jesus' tone here inviting? I think we often project our own experiences as a child or as a parent onto Jesus, onto God. And we think he's irked, but when in fact Jesus is not irked, he is inviting the woman, compassionately inviting her to come out from the crowd, to come out of her shame, to come out of hiding, to come out into the light. Here's a little comedic relief. Verse 31, you see the people crowding around you, his disciples answered, and yet you can ask who touched me? The disciples, on the other hand, are clearly irked by Jesus' question. It's like they're saying, Jesus, this is a ridiculous question. There's so many people around you, pressing against you. How can we possibly know who touched you? Or in fact, many, many people have touched you. The, again, the disciples are good for a little bit of comedic, comedic relief in the way that we relate to, to them. And Jesus continues though, verse 32. But Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. Jesus' gaze here is a compassionate, inviting, searching gaze, patiently waiting for our courage to catch up to the work that he has already done in us. It's like when we have these intense moments with a loved one, when we're trying to get across to them, our love, our acceptance, our grace, for them and we say, look at me, look at me. If Jesus held your face in the intensity of your shame and said, look at me, could you look back into his eyes? He's calling us out of our shame, out of our isolation, out of the place we're hiding in the crowd would you be willing to take a risk, to step out, to trust him, to truly be loving and gracious and accepting as he has promised? Well, you know probably the ending to this story. Verse 33, then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet, trembling with fear, and told him the whole truth. He said to her, daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace. Be freed from your suffering." I have to ask this question first. What does Jesus mean when he says your faith has healed you? So often gospel accounts like this become an exhortation to us to have more faith. If only you had more faith, then you would be healed. If only you had more faith, then you would be healthy and wealthy and have everything that you have asked for in the Lord. Let me be clear. This is not what this passage or any other like it is teaching. There must be faith, yes, but all that is required is a mustard seed-sized faith. All there need is a little faith to be able to reach out to Jesus and touch him. Just enough faith to trust that perhaps if we reach out to him, we will find what we are looking for. Our faith, you see, is like an electrical wire that channels the electricity of God's power. 
Our faith is like an electrical wire that channels the electricity of God's power. Faith is our willingness to cooperate with the work of the Holy Spirit. And whether we get what we ask for or not, God's will and purposes for our lives will come through. And whether we get what we ask for or not, what we will get with mustard seed-sized faith is Jesus himself. His grace, his relationship, his love, his acceptance, his presence, his touch. But we must come in lowliness. We must come where we feel our places of shame to find the depths of his love and his personhood. The question really we've been asking this whole sermon is, because it's the title of the sermon, is why did Jesus ask this question, who touched my garment after all? Why did he ask this question? Was he annoyed that someone used his power without his consent? No. Again, Jesus was inviting this bleeding woman out of shame into relationship with him in the light. It's like when God asked Adam and Eve after they had sinned and eaten the forbidden fruit and they had felt shame and hid from him and God asked them, where are you? Surely he knew where they were, but he was inviting them out of their shame, inviting them out of their shame because he was going to cover their shame with animals that he sacrificed for them with clothes that he had made for them with his own hands. Jesus wanted the bleeding woman to know that she wasn't healed by just touching some magical robe. Jesus wanted the bleeding woman to know that she was, that what was more important than her physical restoration was her spiritual restoration to him. That she was unclean no more to God, whether inwardly or outwardly. That there was no more shame because Jesus will take our shame on the cross, that there's no more shame because Jesus covers us with his robes of righteousness. All we need is just enough faith to grab onto that. Jesus restored her into the people of God and into relationship with God. I want to just make a turn towards application here for us to consider what we can learn from this passage. We live in an age where Instagram and social media in general has increased our feelings of shame, increased our exposure to feelings of shame. We used to struggle with keeping up with the Joneses, which means, you know, we look at our neighbors around us and we compare ourselves and see, you know, what new car have they got? What new TV have they got? What new children have they given birth to? New whatever. And we may feel shame if we can't keep up with them. But now we compare ourselves to our global neighbors. Not only are we trying to keep up with the Joneses, we're trying to keep up with the Kardashians and the Kims and the Khans and the Watanabes and the Wangs and the Garcias and the Patels and the Khans and the Mohammeds and the Alis. We're just trying to keep up with everyone online. I'm sorry if I left out your people group, by the way. There is an unhealthy shame and a healthy shame unhealthy shame drives us ever in a downward spiral into our broken selves, leaving us with no hope. Healthy shame drives us to the end of ourselves to find Jesus. Healthy shame drives us to depend on Jesus, drives us to see that freedom is through Jesus, freedom to become who God has created us to be. 
healthy shame humbles us and enables us to always be the poor in spirit that Jesus talks about. Healthy shame allows us to embrace our lowly parts inside of ourselves. And healthy shame then frees us to be able to die to ourselves, our false selves, our identities that we find by putting into things and into tribes. Identity to be you can only come through faith in God who is both your creator and your redeemer. He is the one who transforms. And so I ask you, church, where are you safely hiding in your shame, afraid to take a risk by coming out into the light of Jesus? We need to recognize and own our feelings of shame. We need to welcome those feelings of shame as guides to the places in us that are hurting, that are unhealthy, that are that the places where it feels like something is wrong. We need to bring them before Jesus with curiosity, asking him to transform those feelings and us. Bringing those feelings of shame without judgment before God will open up the possibility of Jesus redeeming us and changing us. In fact, that very act of bringing those feelings of shame before Jesus out of the crowd is a move towards healthy shame. We need someone more loving than us, more gracious than us, more compassionate than us, more accepting than us to call us out of that shame, out of that darkness. We need someone bigger than us and stronger than us to be able to hold our shame, cover our shame, and set us free from our shame. We need to depend on someone, and that someone is Jesus. The temptation of rejecting our lowliness is always there. Powerlessness and lowliness is for chumps, we believe, deep down. I found Jesus as a 16-year-old in the depths of suicidal despair, thick in shame, and in lowly loneliness. And the lie I'm still tempted to believe almost 30 years later is that Christian maturity means graduating out of needing Jesus in my loneliness and lowliness. But here's the thing. To live like we need the gospel every day means coming to Jesus every day in our lowliness and our loneliness, trusting that he searches us out with his loving, compassionate gaze, calling us to look at him. And so my prayer and my practice must always be, in my loneliness, I find you, Lord Jesus. In my lowliness, I find you, Lord Jesus. We need just enough faith to reach out to touch the edge of Jesus' robe, trusting that his body and his robe was torn for us on the cross to experience his robes of righteousness covering us. By just enough faith, I call you to reach out to touch Jesus' robe and he will swing his robe down low. Let's pray. Father, this is a, it's a heavy message in a lot of ways, but I believe deeply, Lord, that the woman that we see in this text truly was experiencing a kind of shame, Lord, that many of us can relate to at different levels. And I pray, Lord God, that you would apply this word through the power of the Holy Spirit as you please. But I pray, Lord, that people will come to see and taste and touch that you are compassionate 
and gracious God, and you've proven your love for us on the cross and raised us from the dead through your mighty acts. May we come to you with just enough faith to trust you. In Jesus' name, amen.